Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's February 9th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew House Barbie and back alongside me after a bit of a bout of sickness, Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? <laughs> I am recovering and uh, super <laughs> pumped about some Bitcoin NFTs. That was some cool stuff that you were diving into there. It's to say I've been down the rabbit hole is an understatement. I have been in the depths of Discord. And believe me, it like the surface <laughs> the surface of Discord isn't that great. Wait till you get to the depths. Uh, so it's been pretty interesting. For anyone listening, if you haven't listened to the the deep dive episode that uh, we released yesterday, go have a little look. It's a good primer on everything that's happening there. But today we're going to be talking through a few quick news stories, important stories that are kind of coming up. One centers around central bank digital currencies. We're going to be doing a deep dive, deep dive episode into that. Some exciting announcements in the Arbitrum ecosystem. Robinhood and, of course, our friend Sam Bankman-Fried back in the news. And then a little update on some just additional FTX fraud, of course. Let's jump into our first story of the day. The UK has just wrapped up the first paper from a consultation around their plans for a digital pound sterling. This is a central bank digital currency. If you haven't heard of what that is, what that means, Strap yourself in because we're going to be talking about it a lot over the next few years, and it is going to be in the news a lot. Um, I like to affectionately refer to the digital pound as Bitcoin. I think that's the best way to, to <laughs> <Nice>. frame this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a few years away from release yet, but the Bank of England actually believes it could supplant cash by the end of the decade, which I do think is a uh, is a bit of a focus. Here, even though on one side I'm hearing that. You know, that is something they believe might happen, but also they're being very cautious about saying that. People are very touchy about cash over here, as I'm sure they are in the US. But what was interesting is just from within this paper, there are a lot of things to pull out from it. So I'm going to give you a bit of a quote just to give an overview of what the UK government are describing the uh, Bitcoin as. So, uh, quote, a digital pound would be a new form of digital money for use by households and businesses for their everyday payment needs. Now, this is an important piece because there's this big stress on like these everyday payments. And where they're trying to frame the digital pound is actually they're very anti people using this to hold and save money. And there's kind of been a few comments here around it not being a store of value and actually just for smaller purchases that, that can be used kind of, you know, in the exact same way as you'd view cash. And I think they're looking at this as a kind of one-to-one, -one, but the digital version of like actual physical cash and the way that it should be used. So this recently published consultation paper, it, it also alluded to a potential £20,000 limit on holdings. So you couldn't actually hold more than 20,000 uh, Bitcoins in your wallet. Uh, they said, I quote, we judge that a limit of between £10,000 and £20,000 per individual is likely to strike an appropriate balance between hanging risks and supporting wide usability of the digital pound. So... It, 
it's basically avoiding this as a store of wealth, and it seems like them hedging against any risk of anything going wrong, which, to be honest, doesn't fill me with the most confidence. Um, but it seems it's much more for everyday spending. I, I just don't understand this. Like, even just thinking about, like, actively discouraging people to hold larger amounts of the, the currency, surely, surely, you want that to be the case. And it, it's very confusing design to me. And actually what happens, what they've said would happen, of course, these are still plans uh, that are in progress. And I believe they said that 2025, they will have the plans finalized. But the idea would be if anything that uh, came over that balance of £20,000 in your, in your digital wallet, it would actually be swept up and stored into a commercial bank as like real pound sterling. So, you know, that's it's kind of strange experience. But central bank digital currencies are going to be a big theme here. Close to 30 governments, including China, the Bahamas, Jamaica, uh, have either fully launched CBDCs or are running pilot schemes. We're going to be talking about this a lot. We're definitely, Austin, I know you've been itching for us to do a deep dive into CBDCs. We're going to do a dedicated episode and we're going to definitely jump in and get a few more voices on the pod to to chat through the implications of this because this is a big one, right? It really is. It's a huge topic. And I think there's also just a deficit of information out there on it and awareness. Um, Matt, you were talking about, you know, cash not being used as a store of wealth. Well, say, speak for yourself, man. I mean, you should, <laughs> my, my house is insulated. <laughs> with cash <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be we'll be tweeting out austin's home address uh, <laughs> for everyone to pull apart his walls uh sometime soon uh, <laughs> yeah i i think uh you know there's obviously going to be huge resistance to this type of thing and and for good reason uh you know there's actually i was at my barber yesterday and he was talking about how it turns out there's a law in texas that says that if you are a business open to the public, you legally must accept cash as legal tender. And so, mm. you know, all of these businesses that are kind of trying to say like, nope, we're like card only and everything like that. Texas yeah. says, uh, hey, no says I, all right? Um, oh, so there is, yeah. And of course, there's a whole host of reasons for that, you know, going all the way back to privacy and, uh, you know, <clears throat> financial freedom and also just, I guess you could say some some form of habit, right? But um, I think generally, you know, you're right. Like CBDCs are something that everybody should be paying attention to. Personally, I think that they come with serious risks. I think in some ways they're incompatible with the concept of freedom. But at mm -hmm. the same time, 80% of central banks are investigating them in some way or another. I think the writing is on the wall. This is going to continue to move forward. And when it does, you're going to have no choice but to use them. Right, because it's you. You are subject to the the uh, <laughs> the monopoly that is your government. The uh, the government gang, the mafia that rules over you, <laughs> will say how how you must pay them. 
Um, so I think that we need to be aware of their dangers and shape policy accordingly. Like you were talking about with the Bitcoin in particular, I was reading the proposal and there were a, a couple elements to it that I thought were somewhat smart. Like, for example, it says that neither the government nor the Bank of England would have access to personal data. That's just in this original, you know, early white paper. But privacy is a huge concern when it comes to mm. CBDCs, in addition to unstable monetary policy, financial discrimination, security, uh, hacks, all of these things. Um, and so I, I think that like being aware of the risks will will be, you know, it's really important for the, the populace, the voter base, what have you, to educate themselves on this so that they can shape how their policymakers think about this and put things like CBDCs into play if we all accept that, you know, to, to one extent or another, it is an inevitability. So I'm really looking forward to diving into CBDCs in a future deep dive. I think it's a super interesting topic. Couldn't agree more. And I think there's a there's a whole lot to unpack there. I agree with you. They are an inevitability. So yeah, let's dive in in more detail. But let's jump into our second story of the day. It's our favorite man, SBF again. <laughs> Robinhood wants to buy its shares back from SBF. You may have recalled over the entire SBF and FTX saga that we've mentioned a few times that SBF had bought a 7.6% stake in Robinhood through a holding company. And now this is a contested factor in SBF's criminal case and FTX's bankruptcy. More detail on that later. But that amounted to 55 million shares. And now Robinhood is attempting to buy that back. In fact, they've already gotten it approved by their board of directors. And when this was announced, their stock popped by about 5% up to $11. Not too nice. great in the grand scheme of things, but hey, it is a, a positive you know, reaction yeah. from the market. Uh, you may recall Robinhood's all-time high was I think somewhere around $70, maybe a little over back in August of 2021. And so this immediately got me thinking like, okay, if Robinhood is trying to buy these shares back now, does that mean that they're like trying to get them at a discount from when SBF bought those shares? As far as I could tell, he purchased them back in May of 2022 when they were around the $10 mark as well. So it's roughly the same, but mm. the purchase price has, has fluctuated over the course of time. Um, it looks like he purchased them for $648 million. And most of that was... Uh, through a $546 million Alameda research loan, which is really like where the contested aspect of this <laughs> comes into play. Oh, um, but Well, I think for then, Robinhood, it's it's interesting, right? Because like, there's one piece where it's like, okay, there's probably a fair bit of leverage they have because you know these assets need to be liquidated. They might get them for a discount. On the other side, you, it's pretty obvious they're in a precarious situation because if they don't buy them and they get dumped on the market... Well, that 5% is going to quickly get wiped out uh, and they're going to be sinking much, much further down. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, as far as I can tell, I don't think they'd be purchasing them at much of a dis discount anyway. So it mm. seems to me like this is really an attempt to, you know, s secure the safety of their business and their shareholders. But the thing is, right now, the U.S. Department of Justice has custody of those shares and... 
<laughs> Robin Hood isn't the only party trying to to get uh, to get them from the DOJ. In fact, BlockFi is attempting to gain custody of them. You may remember in our episode on December 1st of last year when we were talking about the BlockFi bankruptcy, uh, in their bankruptcy filing, BlockFi claimed that they, that these shares, the Robinhood shares, were part of an agreement that they made with FTX last November. So they feel mm. that they have the rights to these shares. And then separately, SBF's own lawyers have filed a motion to keep the shares, claiming that he needs them to pay for his criminal defense. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Poor SBF. Poor SBF. Give him the shares. Give him the shares. <laughs> Stop being mean, BlockFi. Come on. Hey, uh, hey come on. All, all you people that lost your, your life savings, maybe, maybe you're living on the streets now. And it was all yep. used in that $546 million loan f- from Alameda Research. That Pocket was, change. You know, Pocket change. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's hey, how the- many hours of work from his, his lawyers? <laughs> yeah, not many. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, you, you ought to just completely hold off on getting what is rightfully yours <laughs> so that SPF can use the, the money that was stolen from you to defend himself from being yeah. brought to justice for stealing that money from you. Yeah, that poor, <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Uh, uh, the fun continues with FTX. Don't worry, we got some more FTX drama on the way. But first, let's jump into an interesting story about Arbitrum. Arbitrum, the exciting and kind of pretty sexy right now, Layer 2 blockchain that's getting wrapped up in all of the hype around Layer 2s. Uh, just made a pretty interesting announcement. I think this is a really cool one, Austin. I don't always dig into like the more technical announcements on, on blockchains because I think a lot of it is more hype than anything. But this is something that I think is really interesting. So they announced the launch of Stylus, which is coming um, later on this year. But they revealed all of the information about it. It's a kind of next-gen programming environment. So the, the, the high level here, right, is that right now, you want to kind of deploy code building on Ethereum or an Ethereum virtual machine compatible chain. Well, you need to have you need to know Solidity, and that is not an easy language to work with. It makes developer tooling very very difficult. What Stylus is going to bring it basically enables developers to deploy code using like popular programming languages like Rust, C, C directly onto Arbitrum, which will be EVM compatible. So this is just going to like really reduce the barriers to entry and cost to deploy code. I think in areas, and you know, we've got an episode next week coming out with uh, Carol Vong from uh, Treasure. And Karel talks a bit about this where, you know, it's it's going to really open up like the gaming space and make more developers come in and make it a lot easier for DeFi applications and other innovative um, developers to come in without the big technical barriers of like really getting to grips of solidity, which is not an easy language to work with or to to learn. And I think this is really interesting. You know, I, I talked a little bit about how Arbitrum, along with the likes of like the Optimism chain, where it's it uses optimistic rollups to ultimately help with scaling Ethereum, so transaction volumes, greater, lower costs. The entire ecosystem on Arbitrum is just insane, 
right now in terms of just pure price action. So if we look at like the past 30 days, GMX, which many of you have probably heard us talk about before, the big decentralized options protocol, up 70%. Uh, Grail, the native token of Camelot, which is quickly becoming one of the most popular decentralized exchanges on Arbitrum. Really cool one to look out at. Up 640% Austin. Wow. Yeah, pretty. Oh my goodness, pretty good. Uh, Jones, part of Jones Dow. We've had them on the podcast. Oof, year, two years ago. Uh, but there are decentralized managed investment vaults up one hundred and twenty eight percent. Dopex, DPX, that is uh, up sixty eight percent. It is just there's a lot of exciting stuff on Arbitrum. We're actually going to have the chief marketing officer from Arbitrum come on the podcast in a couple of weeks as well to talk a bit more about that ecosystem. But I think this is very exciting. I think this is cool. I love seeing ways where not just for user onboarding, but for developer tooling and developer onboarding, it's going to help make kind of like those uh, those innovative and like talented developers come on building interesting decentralized applications and more within blockchains like this that's ultimately going to help with you know creating more utility and entry points into Ethereum and the wider ecosystem and Arbitrum is a key gateway for that. So We'll uh we'll be digging in more. I would definitely recommend tuning in uh, next Tuesday for the episode with Karel from Treasure, where we we dive a little bit deeper into that. Austin, let's dive into our last story of the day, and you know it, it's going to be one of our favorite topics again, right? <laughs> A lawsuit against Signature Bank is alleging that it quote substantially facilitated. FTX fraud. There was fraud so, in FTX. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, and now, now we're starting to to think. Okay, maybe it's it's not just held within the the famous walls of that Bahamas based. <laughs> the FTX. many walls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the many walls in the shape of an F. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or at least the the future walls, right? Oh, my favorite office building in the world. Um, so good. All right, so so yeah, there there there's this bank. It's based out of New York. It's called Signature Bank. They have been hit with a class action lawsuit alleging that they facilitated FTX's activities prior to the collapse. Now, this was filed on Monday in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Hmm. hmm. Doesn't does that sound familiar to you, Matt? Yeah, it rings a bell. Rings a bell. That, that's where the FTX case is at as well. Mm, yeah, that makes Ooh, sense. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, what's being alleged in, in this lawsuit is actually pretty interesting. It's alleging that Signature, quote, had actual knowledge of and substantially facilitated the now infamous FTX fraud, end quote. It says that Signature was aware of the FTX fraud since at least June of 2020. Remember, the collapse happened wow. in November of 2022. So, I mean, that's a quite an amount of time. time. Yeah. Um, the, the plaintiffs, it says, expressly told the bank that suspicious funds transfers to Alameda were initially for FTX. So they were they were basically watching these suspicious fund transfers from Alameda um, to FTX and, and back and forth. Um, and that what's being alleged in the lawsuit is that they were aware of these funds transfers and that they had flagged them and that they still allowed the funds to be transferred to Alameda 
anyway. Um, so that's odd, right? Basically, you, you could imagine Signature Bank sitting there and seeing, okay, there's a funds transfer that's coming in that's like from a customer or an institution that's supposed to be for FTX, and it's going to Alameda. Um, that looks odd, but we're still going to allow that to happen anyway. At least that's what's being alleged in the lawsuit. And it says that Signature, quote, substantially facilitated the FTX fraud by one, publicly promoting the crypto exchange, two, failing to close, suspend, or otherwise limit any Alameda or FTX accounts, even though the bank knew that the accounts violated FTX's own terms of service. And this is, you know, by the funds that were meant for FTX going to Alameda and vice versa. And then three, accepting additional customer deposits into Alameda accounts after learning of the fraud. Now That's pretty damning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is pretty serious. Um, and I, I, I think it's interesting because this is really like the first that, that I've heard, Matt, t- tell me if I'm wrong here, of like an entity outside of FTX really being like majorly implicated in the yeah. FTX fraud. Um, and Signature is like is not doing too well right now as far as we can tell. Their Q4 2022 report indicated a $1 billion net loss attributable to shareholders. And of course, this is set to the backdrop of U.S. senators going after other banks like Silvergate right now uh, in, in connection to fraud. So I think it's it's an interesting one to, to keep a close eye on. But you may be thinking to yourself, wait, I, I've heard that name Signature Bank before. Uh, yeah, it, it was brought up in connection with Binance. So recently, we talked about how Signature Bank had uh, suspended transactions under $100,000 with Binance um, through SWIFT. So yeah, what was it that, like two, three episodes ago, we were talking about uh, Signature Bank, who is Binance's SWIFT partner, said that they're they're going to suspend any USD transactions under $100,000. Well, now Binance has said that it will temporarily suspend all US dollar bank transfers. Um, and this is a quote from them. They said, we are temporarily suspending USD bank transfers as of February 8th. Affected customers are being notified directly. It's worth noting that only 0.01% of our monthly active users leverage USD bank transfers but that we are working hard to restart surface service as soon as possible. Again, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised about that 0.01%. Yeah, uh, I, I, that, that seemed odd to me as well. I, I, mm. I, I, I mean, like, how else are people, like, if you want to take your money out of Binance and put it into your bank, how else are you, you know, yeah. really doing it other than through a bank transfer? I, I know that there's other routes that you could take, but for it to be 0.01% just seems shockingly low to me. It's um, strange, isn't it? I, yeah. It might be a combo of the fact that Binance is far less popular in the US. And, right, that's that's know, the one, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's like, okay, you've got, I would imagine most of their European and Asian, like for me, I use like bank transfer via Binance, right? But obviously not in USD. Um, but as a as a percentage of their global base, I know that the U.S. is much much less. Um, so yeah. it's probably that's the case. But yeah, there's a lot of like fear around this. I think clearly this is an issue that stems of Signature Bank. I don't know how worried I would be personally around some of this stuff around Binance 
per se, but you can see the ripple effects that are that are happening from all of this. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Now, it is worth mentioning that, you know, with regards to Binance, all other methods of buying and selling crypto are, are going to remain unaffected. Uh, and that includes mm-hmm. deposits and withdrawals for euros. It includes buying and selling with credit cards, Google Pay, Apple Pay, and on the Binance peer-to-peer marketplace. So I don't think that this is a huge cause for alarm, as much as it is interesting, to your point, Matt, to kind of see the ripple effects here all the way from, you know, Signature Bank pausing or, or ending, uh, you know, USD SWIFT transactions with Binance to them being sued over FTX, alleged FTX fraud, to Binance halting USD bank transfers altogether. It's a wild, uh, tangled ecosystem here. Yeah, and I think what we're all kind of trying to keep an eye on is, you know, is that is this it? Or is are we waiting for another bombshell? And I think that's kind of the the question mark around some of this yeah. stuff. But we'll keep a close eye on it. Clearly, there's going to be a lot more developments. And I'll just before we go, kind of plug a, f- a few upcoming exciting episodes we've got. Of course, we're going to be doing a deep dive in central bank digital currencies over the next few weeks. But we've got next week, Karel Vong from Treasure coming on, talking about Arbitrum Gaming. We'll have... Andrew Saunders, CMO of Arbitrum, talking a bit more about the wider ecosystem coming soon. Yesterday, we had our deep dive primer into Bitcoin NFTs from Ordinals. And of course, next week, Austin, we'll be back for another episode of Offchain. See you then, Austin. Talk to you later, Matt. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.